Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we are going to be discussing creating non-player characters. Yes, this is going to be the first of two episodes about different aspects of NPCs. We will move on next episode to how to actually portray them. Yesterday I was at the Games Expo, the big games fair in Birmingham, England. I met up with Mike Mason and Lynn Hardy. We did a talk at lunchtime about running horror games. I recorded that seminar and that should be going out soon as a bonus episode. I also had the pleasure of sitting down at the Chaosium stand and playing a new game by Rainer Knizia, the, the German gaming guru who has designed numerous board games. And this one, it was a mock-up, a playtest version of a game in which four players can enter the Orn library and collect uh, bits and pieces of magic and sigils and put them together over five rounds to try and win. It was a yeah, really uh, good game. I look forward to playing it again. I do enjoy the conventions. It's great meeting people and catching up with old friends, listeners of the show and other people. Um, yeah, a lot of fun. And also, Scott has talked to Graham Wormsley about the new Cthulhu Dark Kickstarter. You can hear that later in this episode. But after all that, Scott, what's it time for now? Well, apart from my, my regular bit of humiliation, yes, it's it's the Lovecraftian word of the... Weak. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. Uh, this week, our word of the week is... Degenerate. An adjective. One, having declined as in function or nature from a former or original state... Two, morally corrupt or given to vice. Kind of ties in nicely with the uh, the noun definition. A depraved or corrupt person. Yeah, I think of this as being a very, very Lovecraftian word. Yeah, not necessarily in a good way. Obviously, degenerate uh, has, has uses as a, a verb as well. But Lovecraft didn't really use it that way. He tended to use it as this pejorative adjective or noun. I mean, it's a word with, particularly in the time Lovecraft was using it in the time that came after, which has got all sorts of really horrible connotations. It's got certainly racial connotations. It's got class connotations. This whole, you know, almost fascistic idea of there was once this golden age when everything was better for us, but we have somehow degenerated from that and, and humanity has lost its way. But, you know, we can go back to that if we just get rid of all the people who are doing it wrong. Well, also implicit with Within that is like there's degenerate bloodlines, but there's also the the superior, yes, blonde, blue eyed, mm-hmm. those ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there certainly is a, a strong current of that going through Lovecraft. But I mean, it's not just racial. I mean, there, there's certainly the classed aspect of it as well, which will come up in a couple of the uh, the readings that we'll do. Yeah, it, it certainly it comes up in At the Mountains of Madness, doesn't it? When he's talking about the Elder Things and yes. some of those as they progress, they become degenerate, and it's reflected in their artwork. 
And it comes up quite a lot in Beyond the Wall of Sleep as well, because you know it deals with a, a character who is this sort of backwards hillbilly who is having this, you know, these really profound dreams. And he's described an awful lot as being degenerate, uh, but at the same time sort of transcending that because of the power of his dreams. Appears 13 times in Lovecraft's fiction. Lucky for some. Quite a low count, but a very characteristic one. There are certainly you know, other characters and other situations in there which you know, could be described as degenerate in, in Lovecraft stories. But you know, that, that's not always the word that he uses uh, to describe it. But you know, that idea of being degenerate or things having degenerated is, yeah, I think, a huge part of the way he saw things. So now let's have a look at how Lovecraft used the word degenerate in his writings. From Beyond the Wall of Sleep. That there he was no peasant or degenerate, but a creature of importance and vivid life, moving proudly and dominantly, and checked only by a certain deadly enemy who seemed to be a being of visible yet ethereal structure, and who did not appear to be of human shape, since Slater never referred to it as a man, or as aught save a thing. And from the lurking fear... The place is a remote, lonely elevation in that part of the Catskills where Dutch civilization once feebly and transiently penetrated, leaving behind as it receded only a few ruined mansions and a degenerate squatter population inhabiting pitiful hamlets on isolated slopes. And from the Call of Cthulhu. Professor Webb had been engaged 48 years before in a tour of Greenland and Iceland in search of some runic inscriptions which he failed to unearth, and, whilst high up on the West Greenland coast, had encountered a singular tribe or cult of degenerate Eskimo, whose religion, a curious form of devil worship, chilled him with its deliberate bloodthirstiness and repulsiveness. And now on to our main topic, creating NPCs. Personally, I think that NPCs are probably the most important tool that GMs have at their disposal. These are the means by which we interact directly with the player characters. We use them to set up the world, set the scene, demonstrate consequences or aspects of the game world, and also generally have fun playing. And also they're a lot more friendly than dice too. I mean, these are, it's a role-playing game, and without these, you as GM don't do any role-playing. Mm. When I come up with a game, if it's just all player-based and they're in some, you know, there's just a bunch of players and they're in a, you know, haunted my house or whatever, unless there's any NPCs in it, I start to get a bit worried and I think, well, I'm not actually going to get to actually kind of interact and role-play with the, the player characters. So I think, you know, I always want to have some non-player characters in a scenario. I was saying, you can still have fun anyway in that kind of situation. You could almost use the house as an NPC in that example. Well, you can have an act against the player characters, but you don't get to speak in the voice of the house unless you're going to, you know, have a magic mouth on the wall and it's going to talk to them and stuff like that, which, fair enough, then it becomes an NPC. But it's monster house. You know what I mean? You mm. can do that, you can have fun, but you're missing a big dimension, I think. And I think having good NPCs, interesting NPCs, memorable NPCs can really make or break a game for the players. So there's a whole list of ingredients that go together to make up a, a good NPC. Perhaps top of the list is a name. 
the hardest bit first yeah yeah (laughs) that is probably the bit that i tend to do last but yes it's i think so that's fair enough come up with the name last that's not a problem if you're reading through a published scenario, it's the the hook that you've got there for you know, identifying who the NPC is. It'll usually give you some indication of uh, the gender, the culture. And the period, sometimes. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and also, I mean, depending on the type of name, it can you know, have other implications there. I know you, for example, Matt, are quite keen on putting symbolism in names sometimes. Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, there's There's a few examples where I've dropped in little Easter eggs like that mainly with the bad guys uh where their name has a particular relevance either to the title of the scenario or a particular event that will happen in the course of play i think there is something to be said for nominative determinism yes i said it <laughs> um, in, in this aspect i mean if we think about you know if i think of real life a friend of mine who's an electrician and his name is john circuit <laughs> he um, never stood a chance did he well, <laughs> he's not particularly short is he no, he's not. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, but what I was going to say, well, I mean, if you think of something, it, it might sort of feel a bit crude, but if you think of, you know, for example, Harry Potter, you know, you've got Professor Snape. Now, Snape, it, it, his name sounds kind of like sniping. It, it, it kind of mm. goes with the character. You've got Professor Slughorn. The name has a sort of a, a feel or a connotation that sort of goes with the character. Now, we don't always have to do that. But it's it's something to consider. We probably should define that term that you just used, nominative determinism. It actually comes from a running joke in New Scientist magazine, which I think started you know, when I was reading it back in the 1990s, where they'd come up with examples of, of people who had names that were particularly well-suited to their professions. It would be things like an electrician called Circuit or Sparks or something like that. Yeah. Now, coming up with names on the fly, and we've, we've kind of touched on this in previous episodes, but yeah, coming up with names on the fly is a killer. Um, so, I mean, my personal thing I do is always to have a, a list of, say, a dozen uh, male and female names and some surnames appropriate to the scenario. And, you know, when I need a name, because, you know, there will be improvised names, then I, I, I draw from those. We're talking about creating an NPC, I think, in advance here, perhaps yes. more so. So it's a case of finding names that are appropriate for the period perhaps and and there are various ways of doing that i think we've all got a few yeah, ideas there's, there's a few though especially if you're looking at a game in, within a historical context there are plenty of online tools where you can find census records as cthulhu games often are right yeah, so. yeah. i mean th- even thinking before the 1920s if you're looking at something mm. 18th 17th 16th century whatever that there are plenty of, like I say, records of, or even parish records that have been put online which have first names and surnames, uh, which you can even then tie down to geographical areas. And what I tend to do is, if you're going for a game set in 1890, I tend to look at birth records at like 1860, say, or 1870. So you, you're getting yeah. something... Because often a bit older sort of feels more appropriate to the time, and those people could be 30, 40, 50, 60 in the period you're setting it. But I'd leave out the the Paul and the the Simon and the Luke and things like that and go for the more kind of unusual ones like Jebediah, Jebediah Ephraim, Ezekiel. Um, yeah, those, those kind of more unusual Algernon, those names that kind of stand out as being 
slightly archaic and and really have some sort of uh, flavor to them that aren't used so much nowadays well one big advantage of, of using names like that as well is it makes them more memorable for the players i mean this is something that you know i give quite a lot of thought to when i'm preparing npc names ahead of time it's it's a bit different if i'm using a list of names in a game and just picking names off it and and trying to come up with npcs on the fly but if i've got time to prepare them ahead of time i am Yes, I'll definitely go for uh, names that are unusual like that. The other thing that I'll do is, if if I know that there are a bunch of NPCs that are going to appear in, in the same scenario, is I'll do things like try to make sure that none of them have got first names or last names that start with the same letters as any of the others. Sometimes I screw that up, and it's, it's really interesting to see the problems that that causes. For example, when we were doing the playtest of Chapter 6 of A Poison Tree uh, recently, I'd prepared a list of names, but you know, there were a couple of NPCs that came up on the fly, and I just grabbed random names off the list. And two of them ended up having first names that stood with started with F, one called Fred and one called Frank. But the number of times people got those two characters' names confused... Huh. No, no, that's, I, a, that's a good point, though. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't particularly notice that. I, I did, and yeah, I was sort of kicking myself for using the name Frank for the other, the one that I, I brought in on what, the fly. What they didn't get confused with was Flame Constanza, though. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that stood out. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've, I can find that if the two names are very similar, but Fred and Frank to me, you've got that initial F sound. But it would have to be maybe another syllable that would also match it before it would be causing problems with me. No, yeah. I would totally confuse those. And, and you did several yeah. times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you want to follow suit with the tip that I mentioned earlier regarding using like symbolism, um, behind the name is great where you can search by the meaning of a name as well when you're going back to its root etymology. And there are a few other useful websites out there, uh, which we will link to from the show notes, that act as name generators. I mean, there are some that are designed for uh, gamers and writers. Uh, there's, you know, Fantasy Name Generator, which actually covers not just fantasy names, but a lot of real-world cultures. But there are a few others where they seem to be designed for people who are creating fake identities for social media or spamming or whatever, where they will do things like, you know, give you addresses, uh, mm. perhaps social security numbers and fake telephone numbers and stuff like that. You know, these things are absolute gold godsends for you know, people who are writing contemporary material because obviously you know the spammers want to try to make this look as plausible as possible so yeah you can come up with you know, loads of interesting names like that for various parts of the world and for america i think school yearbooks many of which are now online for, for decades ago they're great as well <laughs> if you want to take a more tongue-in-cheek uh approach to a handful of names you can always go to the mst3k riff on space mutiny because that's got a great few in there oh god yes. hulk beefcake <laughs> what if you're setting games in a country with a language with which you're not familiar so you're setting a game in let's say um india or that that can be pretty tricky, right? Yeah, again, this is why finding sources of uh, things like census information or public records... But sometimes really a name there, you know, particular names will tie in with particular uh, religions or classes, or classes yeah. And, yeah. and so on. So, I mean, I guess if it's just for your home game and you're not too bothered, then it's, it's maybe not going to be an issue. But if you want to have some mm. more realistic approach to it, that, that's quite... Um, 
you know, it's pretty tricky. Yeah, it generally involves doing a bit of research. Yeah. I mean, when I'm writing stuff for publication that is set in, in cultures that I'm not very familiar with, I will spend a bit of time researching particularly how names are structured, you know, where um, you've got, you know, countries where, for example, people use patronomic names or, you know, names are in different orders where, you know, a given name is, you know, perhaps comes up first instead of last in the order of names. Mm. But, yeah, and and getting those details right. But you're, you're absolutely right. It's a lot more difficult to research things like the kind of thing that would stand out to us, for example, you know, in the UK would be say, you know, having someone with a fairly archetypally working class names, you know, suddenly being presented uh, you know, as, as a, a minor member of the aristocracy or something like that. I'm struggling to think of particular examples, but uh, you'd know when you saw it that it would be jarringly wrong. But on the other hand, if you're, say, an American writer or a, an Australian writer or, you know, from anywhere outside the UK, that kind of thing probably wouldn't stand out to you at all because it's just not part of the culture you've been brought up in. And I'm sure there are completely egregious examples like that that we've all committed at some stage where we've just mm. misunderstood local cultures. I think I probably wouldn't go in, Scott, for researching the how the names all go together and actually understanding the methodology of it, because I'm lazy. What I'd probably go for, for a shortcut, if I just want like a couple of names, what I would probably go for is looking up it may be a Wikipedia article about somebody in that country and that inevitably sort of names a couple of other people that are kind of associated with that, you know, slightly more famous person from that culture and I'll just sort of nab those. But, I mean, the the advantage, I suppose, of researching how the names are presented is that... Again, this probably applies much more to published material, but it's for putting guidance in there about how people will be addressed. So, for example, you know, I've written a couple of scenarios set in Iceland, and I didn't realise until I actually looked it up. You've got patronomic last names uh, you know, in Iceland, uh, but you know, what we do with sort of saying, you know, uh, Mr. Smith or whatever is a form of address, you wouldn't necessarily say, you know, Mr. Gunderson. You you tend to refer to you know someone by their first name. Uh, you, you don't tend to use the last name in that way, or, or for for Russian names. You know, is it what stage? You know, do you just use someone's first name? What name do you? Mm. In what kind of address do you use someone's first name and patronymic name? What, what kind of familiarity would you need to use to use an abbreviated version of their name? And these, you know, the, these all kind of really fit in with the the style of address. We have a few other aspects that make up an MPC before beyond just the name. <laughs> uh, we have. I mean, an obvious one would be physical description. How much, mm. you know, how much do you prepare for a game? Well, this is a bit of a tough one because personally, this is actually one thing I find incredibly difficult to describe someone and how they appear. If I was ever asked, for instance, to be uh, become a witness to, uh, to the prosecution in a crime case, the only thing I'd be able to say is, well, they've got two eyes and nose and a mouth. And they might have had hair, it could have been dark, it could have been light. I am absolutely shit at remembering details like that and being trying to convey them. So I try to think of one definite, really distinguishing characteristic about their appearance, and that's the thing that I'll latch onto mm. whenever I describe them. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing for role-playing games, because if you flood the players with too much information, if you come up with, say, a half-dozen different distinguishing characteristics for a single NPC, no player is ever going to remember all that. Mm -hmm. The rule of three really applies to stuff like this, that you should never come up with more than three ways of describing someone. So, yeah, I mean, personally, I will tend to focus on things like your know, hairstyle and colour, um, you know, race, facial features, build, stuff like that. But, yeah, I come up with a, a few 
defining characteristics that will allow that NPC to stand out from the rest of the NPCs uh, around? In terms of preparation, I probably don't focus in on specific description i just kind of go for a they're scruffy and they've got torn clothes they're all there they're in a smart suit to give me a, a general idea of that person's overall appearance you know when i play it i might throw in one or two details to kind of emphasize mm. that yeah i think having you know a, a few things like that to hold on to helps because maybe this is just me but i find a few strong details like that will can build up more of a mental picture for me of who that character is and it'll make them feel more real to me and this is something we'll go into more detail about later it i think helps foster an emotional connection more with that character so now we've got a name and we've got a description so it's like we've got a photograph with a name under it what about kind of character traits character quirks mannerisms all that kind of malarkey Again, it depends on the NPC, really. I don't think everyone should have one, otherwise you're going to have a hell of a rogues gallery and eventually you're just going to end up repeating the same uh, the same tropes because you're going to run out of ideas. There's only so many weird and wacky ways that people can act. So I try to be fairly sparing when I put a particular trait on a character. Mm-hmm. So what kind of trait might you give? Uh, the way they talk, like um, the way that they maybe act if you're doing some slight um, visual conveyancing in the um, in the so kind of table. what, no down, kind of talks nervously or... Yeah, or, or that they kind of rub their chin or uh, or they kind of look away and don't make eye contact, think, things like that. Yeah. But again, you try, I try to be fairly sparing, otherwise they appear more normal if they don't have anything that stands out too I think much. rubs their chin or, or looks down at the floor a lot or fidgets with the pen or something like that is cool because you can actually do it mm. as, the, as, the, as the GM in, in the game. And it allows you to just do like a little hook, you know, like maybe you have a prop and you hold a pipe or, or, or something like that. But just a, a, a physical mannerism, that's quite cool. Yeah, and I, I will try to come up with uh, one of those for every NPC, whether it's something I prepared ahead of time or whether it's something I'm improvising on the spot. Because I not only does it bring the character to life, but if you're in a scene where there's perhaps a few NPCs or the player characters are uh, going off and talking to you know, another NPC after immediately you know speaking to the one you've just been playing, that sudden change in body language or vocal mannerisms helps remind the players that they're dealing with someone else and helps mm. cement that character in their minds. It's like, in a, in a very minor way, it's like an actor performing a one-man show on stage yeah. and when they switch characters, if they're good at it, which one would hope they are, they will appear to be a different person. That's the way they speak, the way they hold themselves, the way their stance, you know, their manner, their physical mannerisms and everything that comes together. And I think as a GM, we try to do a bit of that. But I mean, these quirks don't necessarily even have to be you know, mannerisms or vocal tics or anything like that. I mean, it can be things like a particular character is uh, very solicitous in the way that they speak to the the player characters, or very dismissive, yeah. or yeah. very bold and outspoken, yeah, or, or, or yeah. very sarcastic. Uh, yeah. Again, these things really help uh, pin down the character. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For example, I, I remember creating a character uh, for a scenario that I wrote called Lampposts and Bloom. The, the character basically turns up, uh, they do not have the best interests of the player characters in mind. They present themselves as being very authoritative, they're, they're well-dressed, they project an aura of being in charge. 
And I've always made it a point to try to play the character that way. So when I'm at the table, I tend to drop my voice, uh, you know, speak in a deeper voice, you know, project a lot, sit very you know, straight, make eye contact when I'm talking to people, and generally, you know, use all those little tricks for I'm in charge body language. And it's been really interesting seeing the way that that works at the table, because if people will just respond to that authority. So having those, those things prepared ahead of time can change the tone of the game. Uh, we'll come into this a bit more in the next episode when we talk about how to play the characters. Mm. Certainly cementing stuff like that ahead of time, particularly if you've got the skills to pull it off as a GM, can uh, transform the game. So a quick recap, we've got a name, we've got a physical description, and we've got character traits or, or quirks, call them what you will. But now we kind of need to think how they fit into the game. You know, why are they in the game? What's their motivations? What are they trying to get? Why, why are they there? They're not just an NPC that nobody's going to bother talking to, are they? They're, they're there for a reason. Yeah, I remember having this real light bulb moment when I first read Dogs in the Vineyard about 10 years ago. There is just a little bit of advice in there. Well, it's not even advice. It's a rule for how you're creating the NPCs as part of the town in a session of Dogs in the Vineyard. And it's that... Every NPC that the players encounter or the player characters encounter has got to want something from the player characters. That's very particular to Dogs in the Vineyard, but what that advice means in general for role-playing games is that if you're preparing um, an NPC for your game, they've got to have some reason for being there that ties in with the player characters, whether it is that they're going to want something, whether they're going to act as a foil, uh, some kind of spoiler, uh, whether they're going to be an antagonist, uh, whether they're going to help the player characters in some way. There's got to be some reason for them to interact with the player characters. Yeah, so that tends to be, you know, oh, I think, you know, that person's up to no good. You know, can you go and find out what they're up to? Or, well, I am an antiques dealer. If you're going over there, can you see if you can, you know, bag me anything like that you know it's, mm. it's just some ask making some request of the the player characters i think is is great and i've tried to incorporate that in in call of cthulhu in in the role-playing hooks um for npcs very deliberately drawn from you know dogs in the vineyard idea of, of the npcs wanting something some sort of hook into the player characters Sometimes I kind of sit on the fence a bit on this. Um, I don't like to have every NPC out there want something of the um, something of the PCs. I think the last time I put together a, um, a game on like on a casual basis, when I tried to set up a fairly wide range of NPCs, it revolved around a, a new housing development that had just been built outside of uh, town, out of Potter's Lake for Heaven and Earth. And thought, you're just going to have a lot of regular people that have turned up here just because they've moved there. Sure, they've got their own things going on, so I didn't have motivations per se, but I gave them backgrounds to say, this is why they're here, this is what they're doing amongst themselves. And so that could potentially lead a few little, not red herrings, but other like side missions if they suddenly realise, hang on, that guy's sneaking out late at night. Yeah, sure, it's because he's having an affair with a person two doors down. Things like that, that they aren't necessarily 
there to directly draw the PCs in, but provide the PCs with something to um, something to pull on, rather than just yeah. everyone they meet suddenly saying, "Oh, well, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do no, the other?" No, no. I mean that's why I'm saying, yeah, that particular advice is for dogs in the vineyard. But mm-hmm. it's the idea that each one should have that hook. And what you're talking about there is still a hook. It's not one that they're necessarily directly presenting to the player characters, but it's mm-hmm. something that you've constructed into the NPC as a reason for the player characters to interact with them. They are mm-hmm. sneaking around at night. They are doing something suspicious. That's still a hook. It's you know, it's just as much a hook as you know, Paul's antique dealer coming up and sort of saying, "Oh, you know, can you can you go and you know get this armoire for me that's honestly not full of cocaine and get it into the country?" <laughs> um, it serves the same fundamental purpose. It gives the NPC a reason to be there, and it gives the player characters a reason to interact with the NPC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe not one that's so directly going straight to them. Yes. Yeah. So they've got a motivation in the game. There's something they. Maybe they want from the player characters. They've got some motivation for what they're doing in the in the scheme of things. But I guess we kind of need to know what they know about, you know, the, the scenario, about what's going on, what they know about other people. So if the if the player characters ask you, you know, as the NPC, you know, what's going on in that house over there, you know, what does that NPC know? Yes, and how much can that knowledge be trusted? Having multiple viewpoints and multiple interpretations of the same event is a great way to confuse players. Oh, yeah, the Rashomon approach. Mm. Yes. I mean, it's easy to sort of see too much misinformation, I guess. I think, equally, having some fallibility built in or, you know, they've, they've got the wrong end of the stick, so they present some information, but it's, you know, through their filter. And there's all sorts of reasons why a character might be presenting faulty information. You know, maybe it is that they're trying to cover something up. Or it could just be that, you know, as you say, they've misunderstood things. It could be that they're seeing things through a particular, you know, philosophical or religious lens or something like that. And, mm. you know, they, they, they're interpreting things, you know, according to their own worldview. It's demons! <laughs> exactly. I'm not, not yeah. saying, it's not saying it's aliens, but... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but another way is that they've only seen a particular snapshot and something mm. really out of context. Yeah, yeah. It's the old, uh, you know, Feeling the elephant thing. Yeah. Yeah. Feeling the elephant every time I make a scenario. (laughs) But I guess whatever gets you through the night, Matt. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that links in to the the previous thing we just said, motivation. So I guess those two things go in hand, hand in hand. What does the NPC actually know? And then what's their motivation? Yeah, that motivation is going to inform what knowledge they'll put forward. And and also, you know, what are they actually going to be willing to share easily with the player characters? So, I mean, th- this is probably something you see a lot in investigative games. Uh, it's, you know, NPCs that have got to be given a reason uh, to share what they know with the, mm. the player characters. Where, you know, perhaps they witnessed a crime or a strange event and they're nervous about repercussions. They tell all the details. Maybe they feel somehow complicit in it themselves and are trying to, you know, paint themselves in the best light. But, you know, you as, as a player character will have to drill down into that and try to get as much of the truth out of them as you can. And that's going to inform me on whether the player characters are going to need to make a persuade role or a fast talk role or intimidation or something like that or whether the npc is just going to blurt it all out and then probably get taken away by the men in white coats 
I, and then again, you have NPCs who are there sometimes just to act as clue dispensers. I can think of a few examples from published scenarios where there are you know NPCs who you you may track down who just basically you know once you're there and you say who you are or what you're involved with, you know, it's just sort of oh yeah here's a massive info dump. Yeah, if you're lucky, you'll get handouts. If not, you know, you better just start writing fuck tons of notes. What Scott means is. There's the NPC when you go up and punch them. <laughs> the, these, are the, these are the clues that fall out. It's yeah? it, it like, the, ooh, ah! It, they just, all the info just tumbles out of their yeah. mouth, yeah. Well, you, you, you set fire to them and then you just read it all in the ashes afterwards. Like a, That's your uh, technique, yeah, Scott. A form of divination. <laughs> but N- I don't know. NPC the whole, pyromancy. The whole thing of just putting them down as clue dispenser just seems a bit mundane. But I it, guess that, it, that is a... A thing. It's something that I personally, you know, try to avoid in the games I, I run and, and write. And, but when we're plotting but, a game, we don't think, oh, we need a clue dispenser here. No, but I, I, I certainly have read a number of published scenarios and I've played in games where there are, you know, NPCs who very obviously are clue yeah. dispensers, you know. Um, you know, it's that time in the game where the player characters need to know a lot more about what's going on. So Professor Jones will pop up and and just tell them, you know, all, you know, all about the cult's sinister plans. You should have a prophetic dream about that NPC before you introduce them of being a one-armed bandit that they just pull the arm and all of a sudden <laughs> it comes up with clue, clue, clue! <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about creating NPCs here, so we're preparing them in advance. How many do we prepare? Because so, if I'm designing a scenario based in Buckingham, I mean, I'm not going to stab up every body in Buckingham. There's well, that's because you know, thousands ball. of them. This is what Matt would do for a White Wolf game. <laughs> Funnily enough, <laughs> <laughs> when we we've, start, tu- we've touched on this before, yeah, Matt. Yeah, 356 NPCs. Oh, for fuck's sake! <laughs> so, but you know, the point being, how do you decide who to detail? And who to just leave as a a name or just, you know, another, you know, blank? Part of it is the expectation of what the player characters are going to do when they encounter them, uh, how you expect them to interact. So, you know, if a character is a librarian that they're going to go and talk to and try to get a bit of information from and perhaps, you know, fast talk into getting access to the restricted book section then there's probably no point in putting combat stats in there. Oh, yeah, some groups may just want to beat them up and take the keys. So, you know, that, that may be a requirement. But most of the time, that's not the kind of interaction that's going to be there. And so if this is something you're, pre- you're preparing just for yourself, then just having some idea of how they're going to respond in a social situation might be enough. Hmm. For me, usually NPCs come organically out of the design of the scenario. So, for example, if it's a Wild West game and there's a saloon, there's going to be probably a guy wiping glasses behind the bar who's going to know local stuff. So, you know, do a bit of description about that NPC. Someone and playing then on the piano. <laughs> yeah, I probably wouldn't do the guy on the piano. I'd probably do a card player and maybe a bar girl or something like that. So there's there's three NPCs in there. I probably wouldn't describe any more, but I'd improvise some if need be. Yeah, uh, you find a lot of the time, again, this is something we'll come back to in the next episode, but a lot of the time you can just describe a setting and the players at some stage will say, oh, but you know, is there, you know, say, a piano player in the saloon? And it's all, well, yes, there is now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and of course, yeah, the question comes then, which ones do you stack? Because doing the bits we've just talked about, the name, the the brief description of, of a character trait, um, thinking about their knowledge, how they fit into the scenario, that's all kind of, to me, that's kind of all integral to the scenario and that's that's 
fairly logical. The bit that's then kind of bolted on is is the stats. <sighs> I mean, it depends how much detail you're going to do for yourself. Yeah, I. This is one reason why I am very, very drawn to mechanically light games because. I, I don't tend to prepare much about NPCs ahead of time. I mean, it depends on the project. Um, I mean, sometimes I will, but most of the time I may have a name and an idea, a, a, a general concept for the character in mind ahead of time. I want a system that's light enough or easy enough to improvise the stats, at least one that I'm familiar enough with that you know, I know the bits that are important and I can sort of fudge the rest. So, for example, with Call of Cthulhu, if I need to have uh, mechanical interactions with an NPC, then uh, if it's non-combat, then you know that mostly just sets difficulty levels, and that's the kind of thing that I can you know just do on the fly, so I don't need to stat that character. If I expect them to be involved in a combat, then you know maybe I'll stat them ahead of time. Maybe I'll find a similar NPC in a published thing that I can use, or maybe I'll just think right, you know they've probably got eleven hit points. You know maybe you know thirty percent in fighting brawl. And then, you know, just write a few of those stats down and, and do the rest on the fly. Yeah, totally. If I'm preparing a scenario for myself to run, I don't stat the NPCs for Call of Cthulhu. I mean, I'll put advice in the, in the book for that, that if it's just somebody who's just a regular woman or man, then their skills just kind of going to be average. They're, they're going to be, most of the, the roles against them are just going to be normal difficulty. But if it's somebody of a particular profession and you're challenging them on their professional skill, then it's going to be hard. Yeah, similar thing for me. I set the kind of levels of difficulty that, or rather levels of skill. If it's an antagonist that's just a regular person or if it's an easy encounter, they'll maybe have a skill of 30. Um, up that, if it's like the more normal or average, then it'll be around 50. And if they're up against someone that's a pro, then it's 70. That's it. Yeah, I can't be bothered to sat, sit down and do all the numbers and the number crunching. Now that we've got some idea of what actually makes up an NPC, how do we decide what kinds of roles or what kinds of NPCs to put in our games? What what uh, archetypes or or functions do we tend to go back to or find particularly useful in our games? I, has, I hesitate to use the word antagonist, but more so the catalyst for the scenario having started. Uh, generally, a lot of the scenario ideas I come up with are the result of someone has done something or something has happened, and that is usually the result of someone having been involved in a particular situation. So there is obviously that person that has then everything has spiralled out from there. Yeah. So I almost look at that as being the centre of a diagram and then pull back and then think logically who would be connected with this person or the situation that they've created. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's more of a catalyst than an antagonist, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I think I come up with a group of NPCs that seem appropriate to the scenario. I don't think I've ever considered, have I got enough antagonists? Have I got enough people that are going to help them? Have I got enough people to give clues? I think that I just consider the scenario and the characters that suggest themselves in it. I'm not sure. Do you think... I, I do. I, I, I certainly think about things like antagonists because drama is predicated upon conflict and you, you need conflict in a game for it to work. You need uh, characters 
against whom the player character is going to butt heads. Now, whether that's because they are doing something outright villainous, whether they've just got different motivations, maybe they're rivals for something, or it could just be a misunderstanding. It could even be a relatively helpful character who is just acting in a, a strange or you know slightly unhelpful way. Whatever it is, as long as you've got that bit of, of, of friction in there, then you know, I think that's when a lot of the cool role-playing happens. Oh, I would very much agree. I, it just seems to me like they, <laughs> I don't know, they all kind of organically crop up. It's not something I consider, but usually there's, you know, if there's a scenario, there is some bad stuff going on and there'll be people associated with that. So they just kind of, you know... I don't really consider putting them in. They just, they just kind of are yeah. there to me. A logical know. extension of what's happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, but, yeah. But I think, Paul, this is because in your world, everyone's an antagonist. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have friendly, helpful... Imp- yeah, how many helpful, friendly NPCs do we have? I'm pretty sure I put some of those in. Really depends on the scenario. It does. Yeah. 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 And indeed, the, the helpful, friendly people... You know, usually hold your hand and lead you into trouble. <laughs> not because, not maliciously, but you know, they just sort of by helping you. You know, where are they helping you to? Yeah, I, I don't think I've I've ever set out to create a wholly helpful NPC. Um, that I, I I find myself drawn to create ones that are broken in some way, or um, you know, will do things that will make life difficult uh, for the player characters. Um, so, I, for example, in the Unknown Armies game that I ran at the club a while back, I remember Dom at some stage deciding that uh, his character must know an urban explorer. So I created an urban explorer character. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah, because he wanted to know someone who would be able to, you know, get into some of the underground rivers of London and, and hidden spaces and, and act as his guide. Yeah, I thought, yeah, let's, let's do that, but let's make her an entropomancer so that she does all this stuff but she does so in such a suicidally careless way that every time you know she does something helpful for the characters you know leads them somewhere that's going to be interesting it's going to be at such enormous risk that they're going to wish that she hadn't helped them yeah because all she's interested is getting charges she doesn't give a shit about us (laughs) (laughs) but you know she was still a helpful character i mean you you got to where you needed to go as a result of her help it's just that you nearly all died in the process yeah thankfully only nearly (laughs) i think one way especially if you've got an antagonist where you can really kind of dial up the emotional reaction to them is to have them have a goal or have them have an agenda or plan which you can empathize with and have that moment of holy shit actually i can see things from their perspective and what they seem to be doing is actually a legitimate thing and have them suddenly do that 360 turn in viewpoint i think that makes for a much more interesting dynamic when you're confronted with that kind of character yeah, and similarly, you know, one one thing that we've done ourselves, you know, in at least one project, is the flip side of that, and sort of, you know, this this NPC that you were entirely sympathetic with, you suddenly understand what their motivations are, and it's oh, hang on, no, no, I'm I'm not okay with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much what I'm thinking of. So, for an NPC for a game I created recently, they seem to kind of be with you, but then either they're coming along with you, but they're coming along for their own agenda because yeah, they want to, I don't know, they want to take out the person you're going to visit that you want to get clues from or you want to interview um, but actually they want to get revenge on them so i guess to sum that up it's to give the npc a secret agenda of their own 
that they they can kind of piggyback on the player characters and maybe try to have the npc try to direct the player characters to to fulfill the npc's agenda and that's a you know that's a fun little twist for the for the gm to sort of play it's fine if it all goes wrong and the player characters see through it and they manage to to thwart it that's fine yeah, I mean, the, the, an even more extreme example of that, something I've done a few times, is having NPCs completely misrepresent who they are, uh, you know, using mm. uh, false identities, um, you know, disguises. And, you know, you, you think that they're one thing and then, you know, you find out later that they are someone entirely different. Yeah, Kaiser Suze. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yes, I think another thing that can make them very, very interesting is, you know, as I touched on earlier, having really badly dysfunctional NPCs, ones who are perhaps, you know, not reliable or, um, you know, psychologically damaged or, you know, <laughs> drugged out of their minds, um, you know, unpredictable, irrational, and potentially very, very dangerous. But at the same time, you know, you're perhaps relying on them for information or, you know, guidance. When we were, you know, playing our poison tree playtest recently, I had loads of fun with this because, I mean, this is something that probably won't find its way into the the finished book, so I can talk about it a bit. But um, Robin had a character who basically knew lots of people in in squats uh, and communes around uh, the Berkeley area and Oakland and, and San Francisco. And, uh, you know, as a result, he sort of came into contact with a lot of really... Yeah, badly fucked up people. And every time he was using his ability to sort of say, right, you know, I, I want to get information about what's going on from so-and-so. I said, oh, okay, right, tell me who you're going to. And then I just try to play up every bad dysfunctional character quirk that I could think of and and just make them a dangerous person to know. Go to gouch and shoot some pigs. <laughs> <laughs> that kind what? of thing. <laughs> The crazy drug dealer that was out to just kill every policeman around. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, my my farming background let me down there. <laughs> uh, another one that's another one that comes to mind actually that I've used uh, that I found that really works um, was when I've uh, run cult recently um, to have an NPC who is fundamentally not human but very um, but very broken as well and has this quite human facade give that character a link to a couple of the pl- uh, player characters and really have them empathise with this poor, pathetic, weak person that they kind of really kind of build up a, f- uh, a friendship with they see as someone that they should take under their wing and, ha- and then reveal that they're actually the reason behind why their various friends have been murdered <laughs> it, wasn't their, it wasn't their fault but still they're the person responsible. You then see that kind of view on them change quite dramatically too Nice <laughs> I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that Scott I think if you make every one of them like that it kind of becomes the expected, though. I think because of that particular uh, scenario we were playing, that you know, a lot of the NPCs that people were coming across were going to be like that. Hmm. I'm not saying make you know, each one an absolute you know, uh, unpredictable head case, but um, certainly... I think you are. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, I, I think certainly you know, having each one be at least complicated to deal hmm. with. Uh, yeah, that, 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 I think that works. So inspiration for NPCs, you know, do we ever draw it from other sources or do we just come up with it? So, you know, there's a vast wealth of sources out there. There's historical figures, there's films, there's books, there's, you know, other scenarios. Do we ever, do you ever take inspiration from those? 
as long as you've rubbed enough serial numbers off it and tooled it to your own thing, yes. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward yeah. though, right? To rub some serial numbers off. Oh, yeah. You just take somebody from the modern day and you set them in 1890 and, you know, suddenly things are very different. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's definitely a few instances where I can think of where I've taken characters, particularly from TV. That's where I'd not, and draw some of mine from when I, yeah. when I do this. Yeah. Um, I think the most blatant example I ever used was um, from the... Not the Mel Gibson remake version of it, but the original BBC drama Edge of Darkness. It's if you ever get a chance to see, uh, to see it, listen and take it because it's a brilliant series. Um, there's two characters in there, um, Templeton and Harcourt, which I uh, stole pretty much wholesale for when I was running Vampire, but turned them into antagonists rather than the role they fill in the series. Because the minute they they start off looking like they are quite an antagonistic pair of characters. But they've got a couple of quirks, and yeah, I thought there was just so much gold I could mine out of that that I just looted them wholesale. And certainly, you know, sometimes when writing, you know, uh, historical games, you know, particularly Call of Cthulhu, it's, it's really interesting and useful to bring in historical figures. Obviously, that's, that's quite a difficult thing to do well. Uh, well, it's quite tempting, I think, isn't it? When you're, if you're doing a bit of research for a historical setting... And then you spot somebody who, uh, you know, did something interesting, like that woman who was involved with the expedition to Easter Island. Oh, yeah, yes. It's very tempting then to sort of bring her in. You know, you probably fabricate her character and everything, but there's an interesting bit of background. There's an interesting seed for an NPC. And it's like, well, it'd be, be rude not to. It's almost like the quantum leap technique of uh, having a random throwaway person suddenly yeah. become a historic figure. Like... Um, Oh, there's the incident with Dr. Heimlich of uh, him getting the Heimlich manoeuvre performed upon him when he's at a right. restaurant and then <laughs> yeah. getting led away saying, are you all right, Dr. Heimlich? And you just see his uh, sort of Beckett's face going to go, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> so he walks away. Nice one. <laughs> yeah, I, the, I guess the thing with, with historical figures is that it can sometimes feel a bit straitjacketing because, you know, this is a real person and you've got to try to portray them as well as you can. I mean, that said... If you look at a lot of television programmes and so on that incorporate historical figures, what you find is that they tend to be really badly researched and the characters they portray are generally only tangentially representative of what that person was like. And I don't think it's necessarily fair to hold us to a higher standard in our games than, you know, the media that we consume and we base this stuff on. I mean, obviously it depends on you and your group. You know, some people may know a particular bit of history very well. You may be setting something in 1920s or 30s Chicago, and if you portray Al Capone wrong, you know, there could be someone sitting at your table who gets really cross about that. Most of your players probably won't know any better. Yeah, I mean, I would not sit down with Malcolm Craig and try and present, you know, I don't know, Richard Nixon or something like that. You know, Malcolm Craig as a presser of history specialising in the Cold War era. Yes. So if you, you know, if you know your players are specialists in something, then well, you know that's always going to be an issue, isn't it? You, you 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 sometimes don't know your players, and you sometimes don't know what they're going to know. So you, you just do your best. But but what you can do there is draw upon their knowledge. That's a good just, point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And just sort of say, you know, right, yeah, I've got the, the the rough bits here, but if there's any bits of information you can give me that that will act as course yeah. corrections. Yeah. Well, what's he likely to say to that? Yeah. Well, when you were saying about uh, historical characters being well-researched in media, I thought Churchill, the Hollywood years, was a wonderful, a de- exact depiction of the actual history there. <laughs> yeah. uh, and of course, uh, the, the other thing that we can draw upon, perhaps more for broad stereotypes, is people that we actually know or have met in real life. Mm. I mean, for example, 
when I was at university, there was this guy who used to go along to the university role-playing club, whose name I've long forgotten, who was the most crashing pedantic bore you could imagine. You know, he would get into endless discussions about rules during games, after games, into the minutiae of the setting, you know, just basically trying to correct everyone on everything the whole time. I played games with him. And, or his namesake. Yes. <laughs> and, and so basically, um, yeah, at some stage uh, for this RuneQuest game we were playing, you know, the, the players and I just created this this repeating NPC that was based on him, who basically would just come along and he, he sort of acted as an exposition dump at times, but would just waffle on for hours and hours, un, you know, unless someone stopped him. I mean, that's a great shorthand for the GM. You're plotting your scenario and... This NPC, well, I scrubbed the name and put a different name on, but the, it, particularly if the players don't know this real-life person that I'm referring to, then all I need to do is change the name because the description, the characteristics, I know what they're like, I know their mannerisms, and I just try and be like them. It's, it's just a, a shorthand. All I need to do is write down Matt Sanderson and uh, just use him as my profile in my head, well, which is kind no. of what I did in the game we played recently, Scott. You were my player character, Matt. <laughs> I kind of okay. used you as a profile. But, you know, I regularly go out and conduct dog, drug deals. What the hell? <laughs> no, no, not in that game. No, you oh, weren't right, in the okay. game. That was another game. Oh. <laughs> so, so did your note just say Matt Sanderson brackets 1 slash 1d8? <laughs> <laughs> I have a sand check. But, no, I've, I've done this before, though, um, and inevitably you start off with that NPC, brackets, Matt Sanderson, whoever, you know, somebody you know from the real world or Scott Dorwood or whatever. And inevitably, as you start playing them, well, or I do, as I start playing them, they don't actually come out like that person. They come out like yeah. a, a, it's a kind of a springboard for me to kind of riff off, but I actually end up with a, with some sort of, character that isn't quite like that person maybe it's because i'm not very good at performing them or i just have they have other agendas and stuff in the game so inevitably they kind of come out different but it's quite a good starting point yeah i i think this is very similar to you know when we talked many many episodes ago about uh, how we come up with scenario ideas one of the things that i i think i said then was that you should never be afraid of lifting the plot of the idea of a, a book or a film or something like mm. that that you liked because by the time it hits the game table and you put your own spin on things it's going to turn into its own thing and i don't know about you too i mean the the other useful source i think not that i use it that much myself is for some game lines you get books that are published of you know books of npcs so for example over the edge there was uh what was it called not the several no but there was one that was specifically a book of npcs um at your service that was it yes you get things like that for various game lines, but you also get uh, books published for writers, which can be quite useful there, which uh, things like books of character traits or professions and stuff like that. Writer's Digest publish a load of stuff like this, right. and there's, there's plenty of others. So, you know, it, it can be really useful delving into stuff like that, or books like that, and just getting inspiration for making some of those characters perhaps a bit more multidimensional or, or just getting well, inspiration Well, with, with aspects that wouldn't necessarily occur to you, because the thing that occur to me are probably the same things over and over again there's probably a fairly limited palette um so yes yes coming up with some uh using somebody else's ideas is probably good there it's one of the things i particularly like about um, heaven and earth that 
the vast majority of, at least for third edition, the, the vast majority of the material they've published for it are the people who inhabit the town. They don't ever provide stat blocks, but they just provide the history of the character and their name. That's all you need, really, for them. The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from BlasphemousTomes.com. I want to say a big thanks to all our Patreon backers. Now, unfortunately, we haven't been able to get together recently to record our singing tributes because Mr. Sanderson, he's been moving house. So he has a new domain and, uh, you know, but very soon we'll be back together all in one place and we shall raise the roof with our singing. And finally, to wrap up, what are our final thoughts about creating NPCs? To be more particular there, what would be your top tips for how, when you're creating those NPCs ahead of time, how to make them potentially memorable or certainly multi-dimensional characters? I think the big one for me is their agenda, Um, what they are doing in the course of the scenario and what they hope to achieve and how that can have a degree of emotional resonance with the PCs. That's the biggest one for me because that's the one I like to riff off the most. I like that. I think it's something that makes them stand out, something that's making them interesting. You know, we're watching a film, they meet a what could be called an NPC. They're never just somebody who's boring and just mumbles and looks at the floor and, and then they walk away and that was it. It's, it's Well, maybe it is, but it for an NPC, it needs to be something interesting. So it might be their agenda. It might be that they're two-faced and they're playing the player characters. It might be that, you know, they're just really creepy or hold some secret that's got to be beaten out of them. Something grabby. And I think for me, it's that they're not just one thing, that they're not just there to provide that bit of information, that they're not just there to be a moustache-twirling villain, they're not just there to hire the player characters to go off and do a job, that there's some complication there, they're either not what they seem, or there's a hidden depth to them, or some you know, dysfunction that's, that's going to bring trouble into the player characters' lives. I mean, that guy in the corner of the bar just is there to be a moustache-twirling villain before he gives you the, the job for you to go and do. I've been living a lie all this time. <laughs> all right, well, that wraps it up for tonight. Next time, join us when we'll be talking about portraying those NPCs in your game. Exciting so, stuff. Until then, it's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Well, we're joined now by Graham Walmsley, uh, who is at this stage of the interview preparing for the Kickstarter campaign of his uh, new edition of Cthulhu Dark. Um, at, at the time of recording, we don't know what the date for the launch is, but we're recording this interview in advance of, of the Kickstarter campaign and we'll release it in an episode around that time so when when you hear this we'll put a little bumper in there to let you know exactly where and when you can go to to uh, give graham lots of your money but anyway graham welcome hello scott first of all how's how's it all going at the moment how's the preparation for for this kickstarter going it's, um it, it's it's really good so i'm uh Every morning on the train, I, um, I I'm editing uh, I'm editing chunks of Cthulhu Dark, and it's it's really really long. So you know, for um, about two months now, I've been sort of sitting on my tablet, just endlessly editing. Um, 
and it's, you know, so it's my stuff and it's stuff by my co-authors as well. So I'm just getting to this stage where, I mean, this might not be the best sales pitch, but I'm just getting to the stage where I still like it, but I'm kind of getting sick of it. And, and that's how you know you're, you're kind of ready to publish. So yeah. Yes. I, I, I think I've been through that with every single project I've overworked on. At you know, some stage, you, you just get sick of the sight of it. It is true. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously nobody listen to the, listening to this podcast should actually listen to this bit. But, you know, <laughs> when you get to the stage where you go, I never want to read this again, then you're kind of ready to go. Yes. Yeah. When it stops irritating you when you read through it, then you realise all the rough edges are off and it's, it's actually ready to unleash on other people. Yes, that's true. That is true. So for people who haven't read or played Cthulhu Dark before, could, could you perhaps uh, give a, a little potted introduction to what exactly it is? So Cthulhu Dark, I mean, you can you can Google it at the moment and you can find the original version of Cthulhu Dark. Um, Cthulhu Dark is a, a very short Cthulhu system. So it's, um, uh, so it's, it's like two, two pages long. Um, and it's, I mean, that makes it sound as though it's just, it's just a rules light system. And it's actually, um, it actually does other things as well. So, I mean, it's, it's a very short system, but the rules are very tightly calibrated and it, it kind of points towards a, a really psychological horror. So it's, it's not about, it's not about sort of beating up cultists and it's, um, it's not usually about, uh, I don't know, it's not, not about taking shotguns to Cthulhu, but it's, it's much more about kind of things that break your mind, this kind of really bleak horror that, you know, you know, you can't win and you can only watch your, yourself like, fail slowly and maddeningly um so that's always been the kind of horror i liked and that's the kind of thing cthulhu dark does but when you say you know fail maddeningly i i, I guess you're talking about failing primarily in the terms of insanity there rather than i one of the things that struck me about this is the fact that the, the default option in it is that you basically always succeed in a role unless you know someone wants to roll against you and thinks that it might be interesting if you fail but what you're primarily rolling for is degrees of success yeah definitely so um I mean, t to be honest, it's, it's a bit of a um, trick I stole from um, from Gumshoe, but it's this idea that a, a lot of the time, if you're investigating something, it's it's not very uh, interesting if you fail. So it, it you know it's usually quite dull if you kind of go, I need to read this document and I try and read it and I can't, and that's kind of dull. And and what Cthulhu Dark does is it gives you degrees of success. So whenever you're investigating Cthulhu Dark, you write, uh, you roll a bunch of six-sided dice and you take the highest number as how well you do. And the higher you roll, uh, the better you do. So you can basically get anything from kind of this, this very low-level success that basically gives you what you want to, you know, to finding out everything, to, to like remembering additional facts and getting additional pieces of information, all that kind of thing. Yeah, I, one of the things I really liked about it was the fact that this implication that if you get a six as your degree of success, the maximum level of success, that perhaps you learned a little more than you wanted to. Yeah, it, it's one of the things I, I really like about Cthulhu Dark. So the, I mean, basically the, the horror is tied into the investigation. So, so yeah, when you're investigating something, you, you roll a bunch of d6s. And if the highest die you get is a four, you find out everything that's there to discover. And then if you your highest eyes are five, you find out everything that's there to discover, plus some extras that the keeper makes up on the spur of the moment. 
But then if you get a six, then you've actually found out too much. And I, so I love this idea that you can actually, when you're investigating, you can actually find out more than you wanted to. And at that point, yeah. that gives the keeper this excuse to give you a glimpse of the horror in some way. <laughs> yes, I've, I've had lots of great games of Cthulhu Dark where there's been that moment where someone's rolled their investigative uh, you know, role and... Yeah, a six has come up high, and the reaction has been, oh, great, I've got a six. Oh, no, I've got yeah. a six. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, when it, when you play Cthulhu Darker, um, at first people are very excited about sixes, and then when people roll sixes later, there's this collective intake of breath around the table, because <laughs> yes. they actually know that's bad. And that's a very Lovecraftian thing. I mean, it goes back to that classic introduction of, from The Call of Cthulhu of, you know, the, the idea that there are some things that we are just not equipped to know. Yeah, yeah, totally. What is it, do you think, I mean, you know, you've explained a little bit about the mechanics there, but what do you think it is specifically that makes Cthulhu Dark stand out as a Cthulhu game in what's already a you know, fairly crowded and well-established field? With you, know, you mentioned Trail of Cthulhu and obviously Call of Cthulhu, and there's, there's many of other Cthulhu-type games out there. What is it that, that's special about Cthulhu Dark? I mean, I think maybe the first thing to say there is that I'm... I'm I, I would never say that Cthulhu Dark is like better than those other systems because mm. I because I like those games as well. So you know, I, I I grew up with Call of Cthulhu, and I I think the latest edition of Call of Cthulhu is 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 really good. And I, I'm not just saying that because you wrote some of it. Um, <laughs> I you know, and I wrote for Trail of Cthulhu for for a long time. So I you know, I think those are really good systems. What Cthulhu Dark does differently um, is. It focuses on that more psychological horror. So it doesn't really give you rules for combat. And so it keeps it all focused on the investigation. It, and then it has those little tricks that like bring the horror into the game really directly. So that thing about, you know, if you roll a six, you find out too much. And then there's all kinds of other little tips and tricks going on there as well. So, I mean, one of the rules of, um, of Cthulhu Dark is, uh, when your insight and, and insight is basically what you call insanity in other games. So when your insight, uh, gets high enough, you can then start destroying evidence and so on to, to mm. back down again. Um, so, so you get often get this wonderful situation where an investigator is just on the verge of losing their mind and they decide to do something about that by burning all the evidence, which just creates chaos. Cthulhu Dark gives you lots of little, little tips and tricks, which just push the game in, in interesting directions. I, you mentioned there specifically one of my favourite aspects of it, which is the fact there isn't a combat system, or at least mm. the combat system, unless you've revised it heavily for this new edition, <laughs> boils down to if you fight a monster, you die. Yeah. Um, well, I think I have revised it heavily uh, for the new edition, but but um, but you know, actually, it, it's just changed the words a bit. So yeah, my my, um, my original combat system was if you fight anything, you meet, you die, and then. You know, that, that actually didn't seem very Lovecraftian because, you know, it's something like the Shadow of Rinsmouth. You probably can't fight the Deep Ones directly, but you can fight them off for a moment while you get away. Or you can, like, fight your mm. way past them or something like that. So, yeah, I think the rule now is something along the lines of, you know, you can't defeat any Mythos treat, uh, creature in combat. So, uh, you know, so try running or hiding instead. But I think that's a really important thing. I mean, I... If I read Lovecraft, there's not all that much combat in it. And I tend to think mm. of 
combat is not something I'm very interested in in um, in Lovecraftian games. So Cthulhu Dark really just doesn't deal with it much. And it, I mean, if, you know, if you if combat happens, there's a system to deal with it. But basically, the system is about is about investigating and uh, and horror. Uh, yeah, I do find as a result of that that the games of Cthulhu Dark you've played tend to feel sort of darker and more nihilistic as a result. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's the idea. Yes. Yes. That, that's been very much my experience as well. It's, it's not a happy game, which makes it appeal to me greatly. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Um, I mean, that's the style of horror I like. I, I always like. I like horror that actually creeps people out. Because I think a lot of horror that we do doesn't really creep people out. And and if you're not careful, it becomes about exploring well-worn tropes. Um, so I always try to keep horror fresh and interesting. And, and Cthulhu Dark tries to push towards that. When you decided to design this, I mean, both from a mechanical point of view and and from that style of play that you're just describing there, were there any particular influences that you drew on that that um, that, that led you towards the, this this game? Yeah, um, a whole range of them, really. So, I mean, obviously the Cthulhu games. I mean, you, you can't really design any Lovecraftian system without Call of Cthulhu looming over you. So, you know, obviously. Obviously, that plays a part. Um, I spent years writing for Trail of Cthulhu, and you can see little bits of the influence in there. But then also, I, I mean, I come from a background of, uh, of writing kind of small self-published games, and I, there's other people that do that. So uh, Sorcerer by Ron Edwards. Uh, oh, yes. The die mechanic is, uh, comes very much uh, from that. There's quite a nice little trick with, it's just like the way probability works with D6s that, um, that actually, if you roll a bunch of D6s, you're not as likely as you think to get a six and things like that. So the way the probability curve works in, um, in Cthulhu Dark is kind of stolen from Sorcerer by Ron Edwards. I'm trying to think of some others. I mean, I mean, Cthulhu Dark uh, definitely comes from the tradition of nano games. So there was a, uh, at least a few years ago, there was uh, this big tradition in tabletop games, just writing these really small, focused little games. Mm, and so Cthulhu yes. Dark definitely comes from that place. Yeah, and I, I suppose it's worth you know, just explaining to, to some listeners who might not have played Cthulhu Dark just how light those rules are in that I, I remember I can't remember who produced this, you, you'll probably know, there's a version of the character sheet kicking around that basically has all the mechanics just built into the character sheet mm, Yeah. Um, and yeah it, it's, it, it's not a busy looking sheet as a result <laughs> I mean, I, I think in Cthulhu Dark, I mean, it's not really about stats. So in Cthulhu Dark, you have your name and your occupation and your your level of insight, insanity. Um, and beyond that, you, you flesh out the characters by talking to each other and, and asking each other questions. So, yeah, it's definitely not a, a character sheet heavy game. No, but but I, I was thinking in particular about the fact that you know the, the explanation of all the rules mechanics actually fitted on the character sheet as well. That it's you know yeah. it's that simple that you had your single sheet of paper there that that basically told you everything you needed to do. Yeah, it's it's nice that I mean the the whole thing about the mechanics being so so simple um, is it kind of affects the game in interesting ways. So. Um, 
I mean, one of the things in Cthulhu Dark is there's essentially one role. So when you try to, you know, investigate things or do things, there's 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 one role you do to do that, and um, and that's quite nice because it means like in the game you can actually roll for anything. So yes. you know you can roll to remember something from your childhood. Or you can roll to mystically stare into the carvings and sense their meaning. One of my one of my favourite tricks in Cthulhu Dark is when when you're playing and um, and one of the uh, one of the players says something like one of the players sees something horrific and they go oh that's fine I just rationalise it away and I go okay that's great roll for that <laughs> and it, it's it's really fantastic um, it, it's a really nice thing to do you know I, I tell myself it's all okay that's great roll for that and um, and that's really nice because if they succeed, then they tell themselves it's okay. And, and we know it's not. And, th- you know, the player knows it's not, but the investigator at that moment is going, okay, I've convinced myself it's all okay. Um, or they try to tell them, I mean, the alternative is they try to tell themselves it's all okay and they fail because they know it's not okay. Mm. And that's fun in itself. So, I mean, that, that's sort of an example of how it can actually get quite, you know, deep and psychological, even though, it, you know, the rules are really simple. Now, most of my experience of Cthulhu Dark has either been playing or, or running one shots. Uh, are you, uh, have you got any experience of, or do you see Cthulhu Dark uh, supporting longer term campaign play at all? Yeah, I've, I've, I've done it. Yeah, there's, a, there's a whole discussion behind that. I mean, I guess part of it is that I, I like Lovecraft stories and Lovecraft stories are basically one shots. I mean, apart mm. from a few of the, I mean, apart from At the Mountains of Madness and something like, you know, stuff like that, then, I mean, pretty much it's, it's this sort of short investigation and the horror builds and builds and builds and then everyone's mind is blown and they're not ever going to go down another investigation again. You know, <laughs> yes. they're kind of done. Um, so Cthulhu Dark to some extent follows that, that structure. And, and also, you know, it's, it's a very bleak game. I mean, this isn't a game where, you you know, you go through one investigation and at the end you kind of go, OK, well done. You've got experience now. You've got skills you can use. And, you know, you can up your combat skill. Um, it, You know, Cthulhu Dark is about you being powerless as opposed to, you know, becoming this immensely experienced Mythos fighting machine. Um, but it does work really well episodically. So... Mm. I mean, some of my some of my favourite campaigns are sort of almost like interconnected adventures. So you know, each adventure works very well on its own, but they also come together into a greater whole. And yes. then you, you can do Cthulhu Dark, in, and it does work really well in this sort of episodic structure, where you do get the same investigators, and they sort of recover in some sense at the end of it, each adventure, and 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 go on and and sort of pursue more horror. So it does it does work. I mean, it does work in that sense of you know taking these investigators and and seeing them through all kinds of horror stories. Yeah, it tends to work in this episodic way. We've talked a fair bit about how simple uh, Cthulhu Dark is, mm. you know, how, how, how short the actual rules are. And yet with this Kickstarter, you're putting it uh, out as a full length book. So obviously there's a bit more to, in there other than just the rules mechanics. So, so what is it that people can actually expect to find in, the, in the, the core rule book? So I can answer this question in two ways. I can give you like the really professional answer. Or I can give you the answer that, that, that sounds funny and makes me sound a bit bad. So, actually, let's go for both then. <laughs> okay, well, I'll give you the funny one, um, and and, you, and I'm sort of talking slightly tongue in cheek when I say this. So, mm. 
funny explanation of why I decided Cthulhu Dark should be a, a big book is that I, you know, I published this thing as a one-page PDF, and people come up to me at conventions and go, you know, so when are you releasing this as this hundred-page book? And I go, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, because that's really going to happen. It's like one-page book, and then in the way that these things just bug at your head. Um, I would go home after the convention and go, well, you know, if Cthulhu Dark, this two-page game, did become a big book, then then that'd be kind of cool because, you know, that, that would let me do, like, you know, 20 pages or so of, um, of, like, how you can, like, use these rules to best effect and all the, like, all the little tips and tricks hidden within them. And then I could go on and sort of write this full guide to play, to how to write a, a mystery and then I could do some guides to how to play a mystery, and they could add a bunch of settings. And so that—that's actually what the um, what the book is. So, uh, oh, okay, yeah. So it's quite nice. I mean, the book starts with the rules, which are which are really short, and you can be you know you can be up and running in minutes with with Cthulhu Dark. Mm. Um, it then gives you all the all the ways you can use those rules. So this really in depth look at them. Um, and then it just does this thing, which I, I don't think happens enough in Cthulhu games, which, which it takes you through step by step how to write a Lovecraftian mystery. And okay. it starts you all the way from what are the things that you fear? What, what are the things that really scare you? And, and how can we, how can we put a mythos creature behind that and like, and, and write an adventure around it? Or, you know, what kind of themes do you want to explore? And then it takes you from that initial starting place of just like throwing around ideas. It tells you how to build that structure around that, how to you know, build this sort of chain of uh, investigation around it until you eventually have a scenario. And I think that's um, that's something that we don't really do enough in Cthulhu games. I think so I mean, it, it almost makes it sound like this that you know parts of this are almost like a companion volume uh, to your your earlier book, Stealing Cthulhu. Kind of, yeah. So, so Stealing Cthulhu, I mean, Cthulhu Dark is very different from Stealing Cthulhu. So Stealing Cthulhu mm. basically said the best way to write Lovecraftian uh, games or write Lovecraftian scenarios is to take bits of Lovecraft and tweak them and put them together in a weird order. And then you've got a game. And I still stand by that. I mean, that's quite a good way to do it. Mm. But Cthulhu Dark comes from a different place. I mean, Cthulhu Dark comes from this place of, you know, okay, what scares you and how can we build an adventure around that? But I mean, you're, you're right. So I mean, I think a lot of what's good about the Cthulhu Dark rule book is, is that it sort of really takes you through how to write horror scenarios and it takes you through how to play them. And, and then it gives you these, these four settings, which I, I think are really exciting. So it gives you, four, you know, four times and places where Cthulhu Dark works and it gives you scenarios for all of those. Could you perhaps give a quick overview of what those four settings are? Yeah, so they are. Um, so the first one is London 1851, so early Victorian London. Um, and this is kind of my favourite period of Victorian London. So it's this dirty, grimy Victorian London. It's Victorian London before it was before it was nice. And so you play investigators in the slums. So you play thieves and beggars and, you know, women of the night, whatever. And... Uh, and they go out and, and investigate stuff. 
th- th- this is a very Dickensian approach, isn't it? Um, yeah, when when I think of a lot of the, the the Victorian Cthulhu games I've seen, they they you know they are later period. They tend to be much more kind of Sherlock Holmes meets Jack the Ripper. But this is you know and this this setting is is I mean it's Dickens, it's Henry Mayhew, mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 you know the the really grimy stuff as you said. It's definitely yeah, Dick. I mean Henry Mayhew especially um, who you know, for people listening, was a Victorian journalist who sort of went out into the slums and wrote about them. And and his work is a, is a huge influence. Um, I, I think the other real difference is, and, and this is a, it's a big thing I'm trying to do in Cthulhu Dark. One of the, the sort of rules around writing Cthulhu Dark scenarios is that the investigators are always people without much power. And right. they go out and investigate horror that is in some way connected to power um Mm. and i think one of the reasons i did that was because i mean like you say i I used to play these these victorian cthulhu scenarios and they often start in a gentleman's club and so the investigators are all in a gentleman's club and then they go out and investigate this horror which like lies under the slums yes and yeah yeah, which is kind of a classic thing And, and so one of the things i wanted to do in cthulhu dark was was just reverse that to switch it round. so in cthulhu dark you start in the slums and you go and investigate a horror which is probably underneath a gentleman's club or something like that <laughs> marvelous so what other settings do you have there okay so so right the first one was london 1851 the next one yeah. is arkham 6092 which is Arkham in the time of which uh, in the time of witches, so that date mm. um, 1692, which I really hope I've got right, otherwise it's very embarrassing. Um, is uh, is based at the time of the yes, witch. Is that right? Good. I, I'm pretty sure it is because yeah, that that was the date of the Salem witch trials, which yeah. I think is what you were riffing on. Yeah, definitely. So um, so that that draws on the Salem witch trials, and um, and so. It's colonial Arkham. It's a very primitive version of Arkham. And it's this this little town in the middle of this vast, horrific wilderness. Um, that scenario is by Catherine Jenkins, who is an immensely talented horror writer who's... Uh, mm who's one of my co-authors for uh, for Cthulhu Dark and so she's uh, she's done uh, she's done the setting with uh, Arkham 1692 and she's done this uh, wonderful scenario uh, called The Doors Beyond Time which yes. is really good and she she used to send me chunks of this scenario um, and I'd read it through before I went to bed and it, it's actually quite unpleasant it's not what you want to read before you go to bed <laughs> Yeah, I was lucky enough to actually play it with her a while back during one of yeah. the early playtests of it. And yeah, yeah, it's a marvellous scenario. I recommend it highly. It's great. She 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 takes horror in a more gory direction than I do, which I which I really appreciate. <laughs> and uh, so those are the first two. What else comes after that? Right. So after that is Jo two thousand and seventeen, and Jo is a fictional African country, a West African country. Ah. Oh. Uh, this is by uh, another writer called Helen Gould, um, and this is oh a, yes, yeah. It, this is a really nice um, uh, setting. It's very different from Arkham. So, so Arkham is all gory and horror, um, and Jo is. I mean, uh, Jo is uh, this really beautiful setting where you you play, um, you know, you play the, the inhabitants of this West African country, um, sort of investigating horrors 
I don't know, associated with money or the remnants of the British Empire or whatever. Um, I think what I really like about about Jaya is just how beautifully detailed it is. So if you read her description of what Jaya is like and you know, what the uh, what the capital city is like, it's it's this beautiful lifelike setting. And it's like a setting you've never played Cthulhu games in before. Mm. It, it's this modern day African country and it's utterly beautiful. Yeah, that, that's a very different take on Cthulhu. Yeah, like you say, I don't think I've ever encountered anything like that. And, and, and what's the last one? So the final one is Mumbai 2037, which is cyberpunk Mumbai. Uh, so this is this is um, this is something I've written, and yeah, it, so so it's it's cyberpunk Mumbai again. You play uh, you play residents of Mumbai investigating horror, and you know being cyberpunk and being Mumbai, it's all about commercialism. It's all about uh, class and social standing, um, and there's these you know huge big buildings being constructed across Mumbai, and you investigate horror going in at the heart of them. So you've got those four settings. You've got the uh, the core rules. You've got the the essays on how to write and how to play Lovecraftian horror. Yeah, uh, you said you've got what a, a is it a scenario for each setting? Yes, is that yeah. right? Uh, and and is that the entirety of the book, or is there anything else to round it out? So we'll we'll see. I mean, we'll see if any of the stretch goals come off. So um, you know, I'd I'd really like to do a guide to hacking Cthulhu Dark. Because it's something, I mean, it's something people do a lot of anyway at the moment. There's lots of hacks of Cthulhu Dark out there. Um, but I'd really like to kind of do a look under the hood and, you know, this, this is how the dice work. And so if, you, if you're going to add something in, this is how you do it. So I'd like to do that. And there's a couple of other things I might do. Uh, but that's basically it. Yeah. It's, so it's, um, it, you know, it's the rules. It's uh, this really good, solid guide to how to write and play horror. And then it's these four settings. And you've shown me some of the uh, the artwork uh, for the book, which this very very impressive black and white artwork, which mm. yeah I, I, I found incredibly atmospheric. Uh, who's the artist you've got working on that? So the artist is is Matteo Bocci, um, and yeah, he does these beautiful detailed black and white pieces, which you'll see in the Kickstarter. So yeah, his work is absolutely beautiful and atmospheric i mean one of the things I'd, i really wanted to do with cthulhu dark was to uh, was to bring a I mean, well two things really i mean firstly to, to bring together a very diverse team so i mean certainly mm. i'm i you know i i'm the only bloke on the cthulhu dark writing team so both of my co-authors are you know are, are non-dudes uh, which i believe is the you know i, I believe is the correct the correct way to say that and also, I just wanted to sort of go out and find people that hadn't particularly written before. So, uh, you know, much though it was very tempting to employ talented people like yourself, um, <laughs> and still is, I'd, I'd, I wanted to sort of go out and sort of find people and, and just you know, give people a chance who hadn't hadn't written stuff before. And the same really goes for the artist there. So, um, you know, I'd, um, Matteo had his portfolio online, and I was looking for Lovecraftian art, and I saw his art, and I kind of recoiled. Um, I kind of looked, I, I looked at his art, his art and went, wow, that's it. I mean, you know, that that's a new take on Lovecraftian art I hadn't seen before. And, and he's just been amazing. So he's got, I think he's up to six art pieces for Cthulhu Dark so far. But but I, I like his stuff so much that I, I keep just commissioning more stuff from him. So that number might have gone up by the time by the time the, the book comes out. 
Then just to wrap things up, obviously this this Kickstarter and the development of the book has been the focus of your your time for a while now. But are there any other projects you've got in the pipeline, or any other things you're noodling around with that that you want to talk about? Um, there's always stuff I'm noodling around with. I mean, so Cthulhu Dark is my is kind of the thing that's that's taking up most of my time at the moment. Um, and I think people that know my games beyond Cthulhu games, know I write this huge variety of games. So, you know, I'd, I've written a game about servants in love um, between the wars, which is called Will That Be All? So, you know, that that's online somewhere. I, I write very weird experimental LARPs, uh, which you can also find if, if you do a search. So I write these. One of my favourite ones is called Marinara, and it's all about food. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean... Really, I'm, I'm just, I think alongside the, the big things like Cthulhu Dark, I, I'm just keeping going with a load of smaller, more artistic projects that aren't going to make any money particularly. But I think that's quite important. I think it's quite important to have those, those little weird projects bubbling away. And then you can, uh, all that sort of creativity, I think, feeds into, into bigger things you do. Well, thank, thank you for your time, Graham. Thank you for the interview. And, um, and just to remind everyone, uh, by the time this interview goes out, uh, the Kickstarter campaign for Cthulhu Dark will be either live or just about to go live. Uh, so check the link in the show notes and, you yeah, know, please back away. Back away. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that sounded a bit more ambiguous. Than I, meant. I think it's entirely appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.